Hello and welcome to this first ever episode of Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sanderlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. In this episode, we will be talking to Professor Ruud Koopens about if we can really know what Muslims really think, and to Professor Andrew Geddes about his forthcoming book on the politics of migration in the EU. So on to our first topic. A few weeks ago, the UK TV channel Channel 4 came under strong criticism for airing a programme called What Muslims Really Think. The programme was based on a survey undertaken by the polling institute ICM, which was based on interviews with a representative sample of Muslims living in areas with at least 20% Muslim population. The programme argued that there exists a gap between British Muslims and the general British population in terms of fundamental values on gender equality, gay rights and attitudes towards the Jews. The programme was criticised for reporting the survey in a biased way and stirring up prejudice. Here to discuss the issue is Professor Ruud Koopmans from the Berlin Social Science Centre. Professor Koopmans recently published the results of a survey on religious fundamentalism and hostility towards our groups, such as the Jews and homosexuals, amongst Christians and Muslims in Germany, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, Austria and Sweden. So I asked Professor Koopmans to tell us a bit more about this research. So um, the topic of uh, the research was uh, religious fundamentalism and, uh, and um, attitudes towards outgroups. And um, uh, it was designed uh, as a cross-national and cross-group comparison. So cross-national in, in six European uh, countries, uh, which were Germany, France, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Austria and Sweden. Uh, and the, group, the groups that were compared uh, were um, uh, Muslim, uh, Muslims with an immigration background, that is, people that are either themselves born abroad or have at least one parent born abroad and that say they uh, are of the Muslim faith. Uh, and the comparison group were uh, Christians without an immigration background, so people born within the country with two parents also born in the country and who said that they were Christians. And... Um, there is um, actually surprisingly little uh, research on uh, religious fundament- fundamentalism on, uh, uh, among Muslims. There is, of course, a lot, lot of um, descriptive, semi-academic stuff about various terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or IS and support and people who are actively involved in these groups also in Europe. But it's very descriptive. Um, more from an ethnographic uh, point of view. So quantitative data are actually extremely uh, rare. Um, and especially there, are no, uh, there was no previous research at all that compared religious fundamentalist, fundamentalism and outgroup hostility among Muslims in Europe to Christians. So, um, yeah, the results uh, of the research uh, show that um, there is a, a substantial minority of Muslims in Europe that adhere to a, a fundamentalist uh, view uh, of their faith. Um, that varies a little bit uh, across the six countries. It's lowest in Sweden and Germany, where about 30% of Muslims adhere to a fundamentalist uh, view. Um, and it's highest in Austria and Belgium, uh, where uh, this pertains to about 50%. And France and the Netherlands are, uh, are in between. Mm. And um, the level of religious fundamentalism is much higher than, on, uh, than among the uh, Christians in Europe. 
Of course, there are also religious fundamentalists uh, among European Christians, but there we are in all countries uh, uh, at a level of about four to five percent. Okay, uh, thanks. Um, what do you think? So you're saying that there's a lack of this kind of research about finding uh, attitudes among certain groups. What do you think is the main value of, of conducting this sort of research? Well, it's the, the same value <laughs> that other kinds of research have, namely to discover social facts and to try to explain them. Uh, and as I said in my previous answer, uh, very little until was known, even in a factual sense, just about the extent of religious fundamentalism on, among Muslims uh, in Europe. So that was the first aim, sort of a descriptive aim, mm. to see how important actually the, the phenomenon is. Uh, and the second question is then, of course, uh, how can we explain it? That's uh, the second question that the research addressed. And I think, yeah, it, uh, for me, it's kind of obvious why this is important. We, we know that uh, in Europe uh, we have a problem with uh, radicalization within Muslim communities. We have uh, religiously inspired violence, which has claimed hundreds of deaths already over the last years in Europe. Uh, we have, of course, also uh, um, a very... Uh, um, large conflicts within the Muslim world, conflicts that also have repercussions for Europe in the, in the form of, of millions of refugees coming to Europe. So the importance of the phenomenon seems to me uh, clear. It, it is actually rather surprising that it has taken so long for Saudi to actually to take up the question and actually uh, do uh, research on the topic. Mm. Well, maybe a reason for that is because it can be quite controversial and in particular the way it's reported uh, in the media um, so many pointed out in the Channel 4 survey uh, conducted by the ICM that they only polled Muslims who lived in segregated areas. And in your research, I think you, um, you surveyed Muslims with Turkish or Moroccan backgrounds. Mm -hmm. yes, so yeah. you're automatically going to get some issues with the sample, which leads some people to think that uh, it's very difficult to communicate this kind of research and, and maybe difficult to draw conclusions as well. So what do you think about that? Um, well, uh, in terms of that, that is uh, a reaction that one uh, gets that people basically, well, let's, let's start with something else. There is, um, these are controversial matters. Uh, and my experience as a researcher is that, unfortunately, um, within the academic community, but also within the, in, in the media, there is a great reluctance in addressing uh, problems of fundamentalism and, and, and outgroup hatreds among minorities. There, one can label that political correctness or whatever one wants, but, but uh, in my experience, uh, this is the case. And this leads, first of all, uh, many academic researchers don't even do research on this topic because they are just not interested or they're too scared to address it, I don't know. Um, and when one uh, brings out results of such research, there is a strong tendency for people to look for reasons to just shift it aside, to ignore it, and to say, for instance, oh, you only did research in segregated areas, oh, you did only Moroccans and Turks. Now, as such, these are uh, legitimate points, which, of course, uh, I also addressed in, in the academic papers based on the, on the, on the research. Um, for instance, I noted that the study is, of course, less representative for some countries than for others. 
take Germany, for instance. In Germany, uh, two-thirds of the Muslim population is of Turkish origin and another uh, almost 10% or so of Moroccan origin. So there we're talking about about three-quarters of all, all Muslims. Um, if we go to Sweden, for instance, then uh, Turks and Moroccans make up a much large, a smaller percentage of the total Muslim population. So for uh, Sweden, uh, it is much more difficult to say that this is representative of the whole uh, Swedish uh, population. But if you take it in a European perspective, Turks and Moroccans are by far the two most important Muslim groups uh, in Europe. Now, of course, I've never made any claim uh, that, for instance, this research also extrapolates to uh, Great Britain, uh, because there are very few Turks and very few Moroccans there. So we need different research which targets other groups uh, to, uh, to assess the British uh, situation. Um, and there is, uh, there is fortunately, uh, other recent research uh, in, in Great Britain also, uh, among others, this uh, Channel 4 study, but it's not the first one. Uh, which showed that that the problem uh, of religious fundamentalism and outgroup hostility among uh, Muslims also exists in Britain and 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 to uh, a comparable extent, or if anything, to an even greater extent than in the continental European countries. Hmm. This is uh, one thing that I thought was very interesting of uh, of um, your research, but also other. Sim attitude polls of Muslims, such as uh, Pew Research Center and Gallup, mm -hmm. show quite quite large differences between the attitudes, for example, towards Sharia law of Muslims in different parts of the world or in different countries. Mm -hmm. So, do you think when when these cancer surveys and research is conducted, that unless we also have this comparative perspective, that the risk of prejudice or stereotyping becomes a bit larger because then it's without contextualizing it we might risk saying that this is inherently muslim or inherently islam to have particular attitudes yeah well i think that is indeed uh, important it is it is it's highly important to point out uh, differences within the muslim uh, population uh, that's also what i've done very explicitly in my research and also in the way in which i have uh, communicated it I've always emphasized, first of all, that although my finding is that there is a substantial minority of Muslims who adhere to fundamentalist uh, views, it is a minority. The majority does not, and that's, that's equally important. It is, it is important to acknowledge, and that I think is the predominant discourse in academia and in the media also, and also in politics in, in Germany, but also in the United Kingdom, the predominant idea is that religious fundamentalism and hostility towards other groups among Muslims is a very marginal phenomenon of a very little group that has no support whatsoever within the Muslim community that are actually not really Muslims, they don't really know anything about Islam. So it's basically some negligible phenomenon that has nothing to do with the Muslim population at large. That view is wrong. The other view uh, to the other extreme is also wrong. The idea that is that fundamentalism and radicalism is something inherent to Islam is also not true. I, I show that, uh, for instance, in my research by making use of the fact that in the Turkish immigrant population there are two important uh, currents within Islam represented, um, the Sunnites, the, sort of the majority current within Islam, and the Alevites which in Turkey is an important group, which is about 20% uh, of the Turkish population. And they adhere 
to a branch of Shia Islam, but a very liberal, humanist branch of Islam, Islam, uh, which, for instance, have very, has very different ideas about the equality of the sexes and uh, the separation of state and, and mosque, etc. And one sees, indeed, that the Turkish Alevites, in the way in which they look at their religion, in the way in which they look at the Quran, uh, and also in their attitudes towards, for instance, Jews or homosexuals or their um, um, opposition against the West, they are actually very similar to European Christians. They are much more similar to European Christians than they are to Sunnite Turks. So that goes to show that there is a very important variation within uh, the Muslim community in Europe and also worldwide. You mentioned the differences uh, across countries also that are very important. So I think it is important to do both. To both name the fact that there is a substantial minority and not just a marginal fringe within Islam in Europe and with, within Islam worldwide also, which adheres to fundamentalist uh, religious views and which is hostile towards other groups. That is important, but is also important not to equate that with Islam as such. Right, so granted that there are some differences in, in attitudes, what would you say are the main explanations for this? Uh, there are a few explanations that uh, that are widely accepted uh, that play a role. Um, they that play a role, by the way, both for uh, Christian religious fundamentalism and for Islamic religious fundamentalism, uh, namely um, socioeconomic marginalization. So people who are uh, unemployed, low, lower educated, have a somewhat larger tendency to hold uh, religiously fundamentalist views and to be hostile towards other groups than people with a higher level of education and a higher income. That uh, is, is a very uh, um, a recurrent finding in research on, uh, on fundamentalism and xenophobia. But um, in, um, in my study, it explains only uh, a relatively minor uh, portion uh, of the difference between uh, Christians and Muslims and also only a minor part of the variation within the Muslim group. The most important factor that explains his hostility towards other groups is religious fundamentalism. So um, Muslims that, are, that have a view on Islam that is not fundamentalist, that is liberal, that allows for instance for uh, individual interpretations of the Islam instead of the idea that there's only one interpretation that is binding forever for, for everyone. Uh, people who say, you know, uh, endorse the separation of ch- uh, church and state or mosque and state in this case, uh, rather than saying that uh, religious rules have priority over secular laws. Those people uh, have levels uh, of uh, hostility towards uh, homosexuals or of anti-Semitism uh, that are uh, quite comparable to those of European Christians. It is the, the particularly the religiously fundamentalist Muslim group that has very high levels, that almost is universally opposed to homosexuality and opposed not just in the sense of not liking or not for themselves uh, finding homosexuality a good idea, but as the British uh, study uh, shows, um, also the idea that homosexuality, homosexuality should actually be illegal um, um, uh, and also anti-Semitic idea, the idea that Jews cannot be trusted, uh, conspiracy theories about Jews are almost universally held by uh, fundamentalist Muslims but to a much lower extent uh, by uh, more liberal Muslims.
Mm. So religious fundamentalism, if you want, is the core of the problem. Right, so um, my last question relates uh, not not necessarily to fundamentalism, but to religiosity in general. Because one thing that you mentioned in your research and that I found really interesting is that the difference between Muslims and Christians is a lot smaller in the United States. Mm-hmm. And there are other polls of seats as well that found that a quite large proportion of American Christians want the Bible, for example, to be um, uh, to inspire legislation. Yeah. So, do you think that the the problem of integrating Muslims is a particular European problem because of the um, the lower value that is attached to religion in Europe? Um, yes, I think that is true. Uh, it's true for two reasons. Um, the first is the composition of the, the Muslim population. Um, the Muslim population in the United States um, is is very differently selected than the population in Europe. Uh, the average level of education of uh, American Muslims is, for instance, clearly higher than that of the rest of the American population. Uh, also, uh, income levels, uh, levels of employment are very high among uh, American Muslims. So this is a this is a population that consists of, to a very important extent of academics, of people actually with a more secular mindset. Uh, so that explains why the level of religious fundamentalism among uh, Muslims in the United States is lower. And at the same time, uh, European Christianity is very different from American Christianity. And the role of religion is a very different one in the United States compared to Europe. So Europe is, of course, the, the big exception worldwide in the sense that it is a secularized continent where religiosity uh, has been uh, in, in constant decline uh, since the Second World War. Uh, and that means that European Christians have much more strongly departed from fundamentalist view on on the religion, uh, which of course uh, a few hundred years ago were also widespread in Europe or even more recently, Uh, whereas in the United States, partly because of the the history of the United States, which is partly a a nation of religious, uh, Christian religious minorities, Orthodox Christian minorities, which fled from Europe to the United States uh, because they were persecuted in Europe, so it sort of recreated this religious orthodoxy within uh, the United States or within the colonies that preceded the United States. So we have a very strong fundamentalist current within um, within American uh, Christianity, American Protestantism uh, especially, which makes the, the combination of these two things makes that the gap between the attitudes of Muslims and Christians in the United States is much, much smaller than it is in, in, in Europe. In Europe, we, we are indeed faced with a, a larger problem in that, to, to that extent because we have a strongly conservative um, a Muslim population, lower educated, coming from the countryside predominantly. Um, and that's, or, that religiously orthodox fundamentalist or conservative population is confronted with a native population uh, that is extremely secularized and uh, is the most secularized region in the world. And that is, that's what causes sort of this, this clash of religions or of cultures to be, to be particularly intense in Europe. To find out more about Professor Ruud Kuben's research, please visit our website talkingmigration.com. Now on to our next topic. I've been talking to Professor Andrew Geddes at the University of Sheffield, whose new book, The Politics of Migration and Immigration in Europe, 
co-authored with Professor Peter Shulton, is out later this summer. The book is the second edition of Professor Geddes' book that was first published in 2003. And it looks at how the politics of migration and borders um, is shaped in the EU. I asked Professor Geddes to tell us a bit about the main themes in the book and what has changed since the first edition. Yeah, well, the book is uh, co-authored with Peter Scholten at uh, Erasmus University in Rotterdam. And it's the second edition of a book I wrote back in 2003. And a lot has changed. So a second edition was probably more than overdue. But the key thing is then to think about, well, how do you change it? So one of the key changes we've made is actually to include Turkey as a European immigration country. And that was a decision made before the current crisis escalated. But I suppose the, the key concern we had there was to ensure that the politics of immigration in Europe weren't represented as some series of debates about what you could call older immigration countries in Northern and Western Europe. So one thing the book does, and did in its first edition too, but can sort of reaffirmed in its second edition, is is try to ensure the focus is broad, that we're looking at Central and Eastern Europe, we're focusing on Southern Europe, and we're taking account of key new dynamics in Europe at the, you know, at the particularly the relationship with Turkey, which I think is going to be central to the future of uh, migration and migration policy in Europe. Um, so, in speaking of Turkey, uh, how do you think or... Um, how do you think the current deal with Turkey is affecting EU in sort of the long term and the prospects for common asylum policy and even the common um, uh, immigration policies in general? Well, the, the, I think the underlying dynamic is important here, and those are the transitions in Turkey, political, social, demographic, and migration is part of that. And so that must be the kind of subtext for this discussion. So Turkey is obviously a very important player politically and is undergoing significant changes and it's not clear what direction those changes are going to go in. So I think that the relationship with Turkey has become really important and also that then became very important because of the bilateral relationship with Germany. And obviously Germany has been the key player in developing the link with Turkey. The deal with Turkey, though, I think if we look specifically at this deal, this kind of one-in, one-out deal as it's been put, but also the financial assistance to Turkey, I think that's part of a wider trend. And that wider trend is the attempt to, in a way, externalise migration governance. Uh, and I think that's because European countries find it very difficult to agree amongst themselves to develop mechanisms for solidarity. And what they prefer to do is to try to externalise the problem. That means trying to get non-EU countries to pick up some of the responsibility. And the way to do that is to fund them to do so. And that would be in billions of euros flowing from the EU to Turkey. So I think there's two elements of that, one of which is this underlying significance of Turkey, socially, economically, politically, demographically, on the edge of Europe, undergoing significant change. And that's the context of this. But the deal itself, I think, is part of a broader pattern. EU states can't agree amongst themselves and have, for a 15, 20 years now, have been looking to kind of externalise their response to the issue of migration. Do you think this um, particular deal, though, with e uh, Turkey, and in particular the um, visa-free travel for Turkey, will affect... Uh, so a lot of European countries are not very happy about this, and it, it seems to be playing a part in the Brexit debate as well. So do you think that would play a role in... Um, um, more generally in European integration and the prospect for 
um, uh, for more cooperation on these issues? Yeah, well, visa-free travel is uh, is a, a key issue, and the commissioners uh, advocated visa-free travel. And actually, uh, the UK government has also been very supportive of Turkish membership, but wouldn't wouldn't actually be part of the agreement because the UK is out of Schengen. So that's one of the kind of myths thrown into the Brexit debate: is that suddenly the UK will be exposed to mass migration from Turkey, the kind of some of the stories that we typically hear about on the kind of on the Brexit side of the debate about the scope for mass migration. So I think we should separate the UK from that. But I think it's an absolutely uh, genuine concern in some EU member states about the implications of visa liberalisation. And from what I understand, the uh, discussions with the Turkish authorities have become mired in uh, disputes and debates about whether Turkey is able to undertake the kind of changes necessary for visa-free travel to occur. And so there's, there is a lot of sticking points in the discussion, and I, I don't think we're any, anywhere near them being resolved yet. But obviously visa-free travel is important because it's norm, it is typically offered to countries as part of their closer association with Europe. We see it across Southeast Europe generally. Countries have been offered visa-free travel. That's the carrot, and the stick is the uh, requirement to adapt to EU rules on migration and asylum. Mm. Um, so on Schengen Agreement, I think the, the book discusses the Schengen Agreement, um, and um, the EU commissions recently described the Schengen as having been shaken to its core by the refugee crisis. So what what is the book discussing about the Schengen Agreement and what do you see as the future for Schengen? Yeah, the, the Schengen was, was fundamental to the first edition of the book. And I don't think we'd anticipated, even at the start of writing the book, so that's maybe two, two and a half years ago we began to do it, we didn't quite anticipate the way in which Schengen itself would be questioned. Uh, because it, I suppose it was seen as such a core aspect of the EU's identity. Uh, and now I think it is absolutely, as the Commission said, shaken to the core. But I think there is a kind of paradox. So in the book itself, we look at, uh, for instance, developments in Hungary. And in Hungary, you see a government that is very hostile to refugee migration. We're all familiar with the kind of things the Hungarian government has done. We're all familiar with the kind of domestic dynamics in Hungary with the the party of Orban, but also the presence of Jobbik and, and, and those kind of tendencies in Hungarian politics. But at the same time as saying these kind of things about refugees, Viktor Orban made it very clear that for Hungarians, as he put it, Schengen, was, Schengen is freedom. So I think there's a commitment to Schengen. But I, I think one of the things that we try to pick this out in the book and, and use it as a way to understand the development of Schengen is, in a sense, to break down the trust relationships within Schengen. Uh, and I think that's very important. Schengen has expanded. It's central to the identity of the EU, and all member states are expected to eventually participate within Schengen, unless they have specific opt-out agreements, such as the UK. Uh, but it, I, I don't think the idea, the kind of philosophy of Schengen has been able to withstand the shock of the refugee crisis and the absence of kind of trust within within Schengen as it has as it has expanded. So I think within the book we looked at, at the breakdown of some of these trust relationships. In the book we do question whether Schengen in its current form does have a future. When you say trust relationship, what do you mean more specifically? Well, the ability of countries to work together to see themselves as all kind of sharing a common set of dilemmas that require 
some uh, fairly strong patterns of cooperation. Um, uh, I think within the EU there are divisions between older and newer immigration countries, between those that are more exposed to flows and those that uh, are concerned that not is not being done by countries that the external borders of the European Union to control flows into the EU. So I think that the and this isn't just a result of the what's called the refugee crisis, because obviously it's also linked to other crises that the EU has experienced, such as the financial crisis. So I think the kind, you know, the, the trust relationships that are necessary to be in between member states to sustain collective action have been damaged by a crisis, uh, and that means perhaps there isn't the same sense of uh, that this is some kind of shared uh, responsibility. Mm. I think in the first edition, you argued that the fact that um, people um, come to Europe uh, using smugglers, it's not a sign, like many people argue, of a loss of control over the borders. Um, could you maybe expand on that? And is that something you talk about in the new book? Yeah, it is, because one of the core, the, in a sense, the core uh, theme within the book, you know, and also the kind of starting point in the book, is to say that we mustn't see international migration as something that simply happens to European countries, that people arrive as though they're coming from another planet. The, the way that migration is, well, the causes of migration, the effects of migration, the understandings of migration are powerfully linked to the major destination countries, to the kind of organisation of the economic system in which they play an important role, to their international relations and to the needs of their labour markets and the transitions of their welfare states. So the argument, I suppose, familiar to students of international migration is that international migration is made visible by the borders of states. Without those states, there'd be no such thing as international migration. So we have to focus on the way in which those borders are organised and the changes that occur in those borders and the borders are not just the territorial borders, the air and sea borders of these uh, and land borders of these states. There are also boundaries of the welfare state and also conceptual boundaries of belonging and identity. And so going back to the question about whether, how this affects things like smuggling, well, smuggling has got to be seen as a response to the development of border controls in Europe and ways to try and evade those controls. So I think what the book tries to do is focus on the centrality of borders, and that means that we need to focus on how EU member states themselves kind of constitute and define international migration. So for those people who are worried or who, um, so a large part of the uh, European electorate, who do feel a sense of loss of control in relation um what what's the sort of response that you think we can give to those people? I think the, the the there is the research evidence would suggest a lot of the people who feel this loss of control are feeling it more generally. There's a breakdown of trust in political leaders and political institutions, and I think that's very important. Uh, and so those who are given the political responsibility to be seen as in control, to be seen as able to do the kind of things that are expected of them. And part of that, I think, in the eyes of many citizens, is to control the territory, regulate access to the territory. But I think that the refugee crisis has put further pressure on political systems, political institutions, political leaders, kind of mainstream as political leaders, uh, that uh, 
they have not really been able to respond to. And there is evidence of a, of kind of a breakdown of trust and confidence. So I think the refugee crisis and, and, and levels of migration into the EU and in particular member states have exacerbated underlying concern. That's very difficult for politicians to respond to that. But what we see they are trying to do is to reassert control or at least try to be seen as putting themselves in control of migration and refugee flows. So just um, a last question uh, of something you just mentioned, one of the kind of organisational borders being uh, the um, welfare state. So how would you say that the welfare state and this idea of the European social model of very kind of extensive welfare states shape in particular maybe the European debate and perception about migration, perhaps compared to the American debate? I think the welfare state in Europe is fundamental to the debates about immigration. So the contrast with the US is an important one because it's been said that migrants in the US to the US migrate into employment and in the Europe migrate into welfare. Now that's obviously a simplification, but I think the role of the welfare state is absolutely fundamental. Uh, and, and this is where you get some of the contra- complexities and ambiguities and at times contradictions of migration politics in, in Europe. Uh, and I suppose the dilemma was put decades ago is that migrants are needed but not necessarily wanted. So there is this idea that migrants are a drain on welfare state resources, but it is also very evident that migrants themselves can help to sustain those welfare states, both through work that they do, but also through roles that they play in things like provision of health care. So, I mean, this is a fundamental tension and ambiguity at the heart of European immigration politics, and it centres on the future of the welfare states. And migration is a really important part of that debate. Uh, and it goes back to the point I was just making that you know, it is the welfare states of Europe that play a powerful role in kind of defining international migration. It's the backdrop against which these debates are set. And that's certainly something we try to draw out in the book, focus on the centrality of welfare states, but also their enormous diversity across the EU, the form that they take, and fundamentally the challenge to the idea of a European social model, uh, which itself is, is under attack and shows how migration is nested in a much broader set of debates about the future of work, the future of welfare. That was all for today. To find out more about our guests, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com, and follow us on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thank you.